Hello, podcast listeners. This is The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Plug yourself in and let yourself go. Hello and welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meakin. And thank you for joining us on this most warm of days as we record another exciting instalment of The Film File. Have you been, Andy? I've been okay. Uh, as you can see, for, for when this comes to the video channel, people will be able to see that I've got another statue in front of me today. I'm having fun with these, and it's a happy Mother of Dragons Day. Because when we record this, it's Mother's Day. Yeah, it's going to be completely irrelevant to anyone who's listening on the podcast, so uh, tough to you guys. You need to check out our <laughs> YouTube video channel in a few weeks' time when this uploads onto there. Yes, we're recording this on Mother's Day, and uh, we record a little bit earlier than normal, so I've just had some very strong coffee to uh, kickstart the heart. Uh, to quote Motley Crue. Which we kind of um, needed because we lost an hour last night. Oh, was it Was it that last night? Yep. It's that, that time of year when the hour gets chopped and um, all the clocks move forward. We don't notice it as much these days because all our mobile devices and electrical devices auto all for you. So you just end up waking up going, oh God, it's eight o'clock already. And feeling tired and not realising why. Yes. I must admit, I feel I'm a, I'm a bit bleary eyed and now I know why. That's it. Oh, okay, right. That makes perfect sense. You know what? I didn't know. I, I hadn't paid any attention. Oh, I track it every year because uh, there's always someone who still manages to turn up late for work Yeah. Uh, on the Sunday. So I put messages out for the team on the Saturdays before it changes, just saying, don't be that person. Remember Can you see me next year? I, I will do. I'll, I'll add you into the list. <laughs> uh, but we've been, I mean, it's been quiet this week because the weather's been beautiful. Yeah, if you're listening from abroad in the UK, we've just had our summer. <laughs> potentially <laughs> yeah I just had a really nice week which i've missed most of it because i've been indoors teaching and uh i had i had a, a full day in the garden it was wonderful i absolutely loved it i just managed to get the garden started i have no clue what i'm doing in the garden i'll <laughs> cut things and, and mow things and that's about the, the the biggest part of my gardening knowledge but it was just great to be outside and, and i i was i listened to our podcast I was listening to a whole ton of podcasts while I was working. So I got through about four. So thinking that hours is an hour and a half and, you know, everyone's generally just over an hour. That was that was my day. I thoroughly had a great time. Oh, don't start me on last week's podcast. Man. Why? That, what do that, I The secret history of the podcast. That was fun to edit, wasn't it? For, for those who don't know, aren't aware, uh, occasionally we have technical issues on the show here. Oh, yeah, we did. Last week, we both seemed to be suffering some severe lag issues. And at one point... It was almost 15 to 20 seconds behind what I said that Lee would respond. And it got to a stage in recording when I finished off saying something and asked something and again got no response from Lee. So asked something different. And he still stood there looking at me blank faced on the video screen. And so I say something else. And then he responds to the first thing that I said. And I was like, yeah, I've already covered that one. And then he responds to the second thing that I said. And I'm like, oh, I can see what's happening here. <laughs> um, at which point I start laughing. And then it's 20 seconds later. He's looking at me on the video screen going, what's happening? <laughs> I was like, I think we've yeah. got lag. And then had to wait 20 seconds for him to hear that I said, I think we've got lag. It, that first half of the show about that. was an absolute mess. When I tried putting that together, I had to move things, chop things, change things. It was a chore. I just thought it was a, it was lag on our video feed. I didn't realise that it was it was actually lag on the recording. Oh, it was crazy. Thankfully, you know, it, it all put together quite It sounded nice great, and, Andy, as it always does. The back half of the show, we managed to correct our issues, and so it was working fine. So it was a 
it was just a struggle to do that starting edit. But it did lead to some really comical exchanges when I've asked <laughs> something and you respond with something completely different. It's like was... watching badly dubbed uh, Japanese movies when they just didn't, didn't used to bother trying. And, uh, <laughs> you know, people's mouths were shut and there was a, a, a speaking still going on. It was a bit like that. Um, so a couple of things before we start the show. Firstly, uh, our Twitter challenge. So we've got two weeks worth of Twitter challenges because we were still running the polls on Batman when we were recording last week. And we've had the final responses from the Batman polls. Now, as you know, they initially started off as like, who was the best alternate Batman that could have been cast? And so I broke it down into the Batman 1989, uh, the yeah. Batman Forever castings, the Batman Begins castings, and then the Batman 2022 castings. Now, for the 89, Costner was the top choice. We had Ethan Hawke for the Batman Forever casting. Didn't know his hat was in the ring. We had Jake Gyllenhaal for the Batman Begins, which would have been interesting if he had been if he had been cast and it had got to the second film and his sister had still got cast as his girlfriend. That would have been very weird. (laughs) That'd be weird. And Aaron Taylor Johnson won for the Batman 2022 alternate casting, and then I put them all four of them head to head. Who do you think came out on top out of Gyllenhaal, Hawke, Costner and Johnson? Costner? Nope. Oh, okay. I thoroughly expected the result that it got. 64% of people wanted Jake Gyllenhaal to yeah, be the, see, ult- the ultimate why. alternate Batman. And I can see why a lot. Um, I mean, he's he's a great actor. He's much beloved and he can do action roles. And he looks he certainly looks buff, but not overly buff. Yeah. Hawke and Costner both got 16%. No love for Aaron Taylor-Johnson. Yeah, I think he's... Uh, um... He's a bit of a, a, a far-reaching choice, I think. Uh, I don't think he's in the eyes of the public and um, has the leading man chops. He's a yeah. little bit too quirky character actor yeah. uh, in a way that, that Jake Gyllenhaal isn't. He has that leading man charisma. Interesting. So then we, uh, we had a second one about films that we thought were deserving of sequels. How yeah. do we do with that? I've got I've got the responses, the key responses that we've had. So Mel um, at Melin six oh seven on Twitter said Rock and Roller, which Ooh, yeah. I, I remember when Rock and Roller came one. out. That Guy Ritchie said that this was the first of a planned trilogy of linked films, and then we never saw a second one. So I'm I'm with you on that one, Mel. We really do need to see the second film on this one. Uh, Nick B off Pointless at IMDb Bartlett suggested Silverado. Which he said he he felt was already being set up for a sequel at the end of the film. Yeah, kind of. A, a, a fantastic love Silverado. He also suggested the Rocketeer, which we've spoken about before, <sighs> yeah, and we just, both the, the, we got so much love for the Rocketeer. Good old friend of the show, Stevie Dan, nineteen sixty nine, uh, suggested Battle L A and Doomsday. I'm with you on Doomsday, there, Stevie. Um, I've got a lot of love for Doomsday. Battle L A. I, I maybe need to revisit it at some point because I don't remember actually getting much from it when it came out. That's probably the It's not that you don't remember it, Andy. That's just the way it is. <laughs> Sorry, Stevie. Anna R. Kerry suggested Dread, which, which was your on. keen favourite, wasn't it? Come on. I suggested that last week as well. And yeah, it needs it. She also suggested The Golden Compass. We've kind of got that now with the TV series adaptation. Yeah. And closer to the book. I'm happier with the TV version because the, the film of The Golden Compass was enjoyable but you could tell it had been sanitised for a mass audience, and I yeah. didn't want that with the latter books. So I think that maybe we're in the better option now. Dominic at Domunication also suggested Dread, as too, 
did Andrew Marshall at Semi Pro Geek, adding that there's so much of Mega City One and the Cursed Earth left to explore. Fully with you, absolutely with you. There's so much wealth that you could tap into with the Dread franchise. It's such a shame that we've not seen a return to it in any yeah, way, shape, or form. Yeah, there was talk since. for some time of a TV series follow-up. Yeah, Rebellion got the rights to it. Apparently, they bought a studio. Uh, they bought a whole warehouse and started building sets, and then nothing happened. Yeah, not heard anything more on that. I, I had a Twitter exchange, and I can't remember who it is, so apologies, uh, about Keanu Reeves' Constantine. Yeah, that would be would have been at Nadine Geneva, who put forward Mad Max, Fury Road, uh, Constantine, and Man of Steel. Okay, I, I suggested, because I always suggested it in last week's show, The Thing, because I, and you and I talked about the Dark Horse comic sequel, which is probably as close as we will get to... Yeah. Whether it's official, I don't know. I'm guessing so if they've got the rights, but, you know, a great sequel with the McCready character uh, being explored further. It's really good. They had a great run on the thing, uh, did uh, uh, the Dark Horse. Interesting. I mean, I think uh, the, the big money was, was always going to be on Dread. You'd mentioned yeah. it. It's funny enough, it was on the other night, and I saw about five minutes of it on one of the satellite channels, and uh, it still looks good, holds up very, very well, in a way that the Danny Cannon, Sylvester Stallone one doesn't, but we're going to talk about that in a deep dive soon. We've got the last few, uh, which top, Dr. Tommy T25 gave us District 9 into the mix, which okay. is the recent rumblings that he's now finally working on the second film. Yeah, heard that. that film. We reported it here on this show. At Simon Walker gave us Black Dynamite. <laughs> I think I know who Simon Walker is, and if it's the same Simon Walker... I, I'm I'm not surprised. He's a black dynamite kind of kid. <laughs> and at the real CKJ suggested John Carter. I'm with, I'm with you on that. I I enjoy John Carter because I love the pulpy nature of the books, and I kind of embrace the pulpy nature of the film. I think it's deserved of a sequel. We know that Disney killed it, killed yeah. it while it was still in production. There's a fantastic book about the making of John Carter, which is uh, if you want to see how. A project is developed and then thrown askew by a studio. That's the book to read. Highly recommended from what I've been told. I've not read it myself. Uh, I've, I've had constant updates from a friend of mine who's reading it. And so much so that it's made me want to go back and have a go. I saw it at, at uh, the IMAX presentation when the IMAX opened in Sheffield. And I thought it was a good looking film. Suffered from one thing for me. And that was it didn't know when to start. Had yeah. three starts and it... It even liked the Edgar Rice Burroughs bit, but it, it just just didn't know where to start. But once it got going, it was John Carter of Mars. And that's how it yeah. should be referred to. It's not John Carter. It's John Carter of Mars. Anyway, I've got, a, I've got a, a, another uh, Twitter challenge. What's the challenge for this week? So this week's Twitter challenge is the alternate casting for James Bond when Connery called it quits. And we got George Lazenby. But who were the other actors who were mentioned at that point? Now, we know right at the beginning of, uh, of, of the Bond franchise, Cary Grant had been hotly tipped to, to play the role, but was considered too old. But when Connery called it a day for the first time, who were the choices? Now, Roger Moore was in the hat at one point, but he was contracted, I think, to the Saints still. But who, uh, who could have been Bond instead of Lazenby? That's this week's Twitter challenge. And um, there were some interesting choices out there, some very interesting choices. There's a great little documentary on YouTube about who could have been cast as Bond uh, when Connery called it quits. Before we get into the main P 
piece of the show. It's not necessarily film news, which is why we're not bringing it up in the news, but it is huge news and it has impacted on the world um, yesterday with everyone giving tributes out. And that's the sad passing at the age of 50 of Foo Fighters drummer Taylor Hawkins. It is just so terribly, terribly sad. You know, our condolences to friends and family, which, uh, you know, we are one in but millions of voices who are doing that. Uh, dreadful news. Um, not the kind of news that you ever want to wake up to. Just just so so terribly sad. 50s, no age, and uh, talented human being. And, and, you know, was great in Studio 666, just had a yeah. natural screen charisma. Uh, apparently from everybody uh, who's worked with him, he was incredibly likable um, through contacts of mine. I know people who, who were who were godparents to one of his children, and uh, uh, people are absolutely absolutely gutted. Uh, really, really sad news, and uh, we can do nothing more than uh, pay our respects. And uh, what a great talent! And uh, I'll be I'll be featuring something on the uh, No Barriers Radio Kickass Rock Show, my rock show next week. It's so deserved. But yeah, you were a massive fan, weren't you? Yeah, I'm a. Big fan. I've been a fan of the Foos right since they started up, you know, the black post-Nirvana era. era. Obviously, I was interested to see what Grohl was going to do and just latched onto the Foos. And I think when Hawkins joined it for the late 90s onwards, he's provided a drumming energy there. I mean, I know that Grohl himself is a fantastic drummer. Hawkins is possibly the only person who would say can almost match up to him. And he's just, he's always, in interviews, he's always been the, the, he seems to be the fun, like always laughing, always smiling, energy, everything. And that reflected in the film where they all played caricatures of themselves. He was yeah. like the, 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 like, you know, the, the fun kind of character. Absolutely devastating to wake up to hear that news, especially yeah. when they, you know, they've just, just released a cracking, like horror pastiche film. And new material as well. And they they were working on working on new material, and the tour was underway, and they were coming to the UK soon. Sad loss, very sad loss. And uh, yep. my hearts go out to all the band, all the all his friends, all his family, and everyone. We're, we're with you in our sorrow and grief at the sad passing. Fifty is no age to go. Absolutely, it's it's not the sort of stories that that we uh, when anybody passes, but you know when when it's one of your idols and um, somebody you admire. Uh, it, it's very, very difficult. So you're listening to The Film File and what is on this week's show? Well, jam-packed as it always is, we've got a deep dive into the George Lazenby James Bond feature, his only, and that's on Her Majesty's Secret Service. We've got all the reviews. Well, I'll be more honest and more more focused on that. Andy's got all the reviews. Andy, <laughs> what are you reviewing this week? So this week, I've not seen anything at the cinema because the only thing at the cinema was ambulance. And uh... yeah, we I talked myself out of that last night, Andy. I was I was gonna go, <laughs> I was geared to go, and then I saw the running time on the ambulance. Yeah, that that's the and key thing that's put me off. It, it looks like a ninety-minute film that's just gone through the Michael Bay mincer and been pushed out into. Was it two hours fifteen or something like that? Yeah, just 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 over two hours fifteen. So it's it's a bit of a chore to sit through. So I've stuck with streaming this week, and as I mentioned last week, Ice Age Adventures of Buck Wild landed on Disney Plus. We've also got Eyes of Tammy Faye, which also landed on Disney Plus. Four Good Days, which I rented out so that I could get it washing time for the Oscars. And ah, oh, well, this is the one, isn't it? You know what? You know how dedicated I am to watching a Sky original. 
<laughs> and so as soon as Blacklight landed with the tag, a Sky original, I knew I had to watch it. So I've got the review of that later in the show. Andy, you're doing the Lord's work. <laughs> and we'll both give an overlook over the release of Peacemaker. Yes. And Andy and I will be taking a look at this year's Oscar ceremony. Is it going to go without incident? Is it going to be underwhelming? Well, we'll let you know. Before any of that, we've got the news. So I'm guessing, Andy, we're starting with the box office. Now, I've heard some interesting Spider-Man No Way Home news when it comes to box office. So the juggernaut that is Sony Pictures' Spider-Man No Way Home has hit, and this should be some sort of drum roll for this, a spectacular, or is it amazing, $800 million domestic. And the movie has also taken in a record $2.1 million from digital platforms. That's, that just proves cinema's not dead. That and the Batman yeah. are uh, relighting the fire for cinemas. Amazing, yeah. really. Yeah, spectacular, amazing, web of. No, that doesn't work, <laughs> does it? <laughs> and yet we've still got Blu-ray uh, released to happen any day now, which is not going to have the same impact as it would have done four yeah. or five years ago. But uh, uh, that's, that's pretty pretty uh, pretty big. And you remember that the digital release is only since, uh, what, March 15th? Yes, so we've only had like two weeks. Yeah, so it's not going away fast. But what else? is burning through the box office right now. And I'm guessing you're going to say the Batman. So quick roundup of the box office. In the US, The Lost City took the top slot this weekend with a $31 million opening, which knocked Batman down into second place, taking another $20.5 million, putting it to $672 million worldwide so far. RRR, an Indian war epic, took third place with $9.5 million. Uncharted holds in there at fourth place, adding another $5 million to its total. It's now up to $357 million worldwide. And the anime Jujutsu Kaisen Zero, still in the top five, taking fifth place with $4.6 million. Here in the UK, Batman retained its first place, taking another $1.6 million to take it up to $35 million total. RRR also jumps in heavily in the UK charts with 650000 in second place. Ambulance, the new Michael Bay action film with Jake Gyllenhaal, took 521000 Uncharted, Still, again, holding in there, 349,000. It's now taken 23 million in the UK alone. And the Nan movie manages to squirm another 289,000 to take its total to 1.1 million. So uh, that's the box office. It looks a quiet week for news, Andy. Am, am I right in thinking that? Uh, there's, a, there's a few scraps that are found around. Uh, for a start, um, an untitled sequel to the Godzilla versus Kong has set a filming start window for later this year. Well, it did all the money, didn't it, when it came out? Yeah. And it, it, it's at that point that, that people got nervous about um, about cinema release because they saw how well it did on HBO Max, not taking into account that nobody could go to the cinema, really. I'm all for it because I, I enjoyed Godzilla vs. Kong for what it was. It was a monster smackdown, and that's all that it should be. Set to once again be shot around the Gold Coast region of Queensland, not only does the shooting take place this year, the production will also bring around 60 million US dollars into the economy, more than double that of the previous film. So it, it creates 500 jobs for the local cast and crew of that area. And that's one thing that people always miss out, is yes. that whenever a big production moves to a location, it generates so much benefit to the economy as a result. And you're right, that they do, people do miss out. And, and because subsequent governments have given the, the film industry a, a hard time, 
they they don't take that element into account that you know crews if they're based in in one one city are using hotels you know yeah. buying coffee locally buying food buying newspapers you name it 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 becomes very cost effective to have a, a have a film in in your location because everybody yeah. needs uh, everybody spends there i had a similar argument when we were trying to get a film shot in in the city and how difficult the council were being and i was trying to explain this at a meeting that uh, you know i'm bringing cast and crew into the city are going to be living here for uh, 10 weeks they're going to be uh, using local amenities another story for another time details of what the sequel is going to do which will be the fifth film in the legendary and warner's monsterverse are completely under wraps but will follow in the wake of what was left over at the end of the previous film so i've got my eye on that one i'll keep a lookout uh, michael b jordan and yaha abdul mateen the second are going to team up for a dramatic thriller called I Helped Destroy People, which is based on a New York Times story about a whistleblower. Don't know whether you've seen this one. Yeah, I'd noticed that story. It's, it's, uh, it's been doing the rounds in the trades for the last week or so. Based on an article which deals with a highly commendable FBI agent who was tasked with infiltrating Muslim communities post 9-11 as the only black agent at his bureau, but became so disillusioned by the war on terror and what he saw as the agency's violation of its own rules, that he began leaking classified documents to the press to expose the systemic abuse. Sting operation, which apprehended him and landed him a four-year term in prison, is what's going to be covered throughout this. Uh, sounds like a, an interesting, gripping, real-life thriller, basically. Yeah. Um, we've been talking about this for weeks, because it just is the ever-growing cast. But Christopher <laughs> Nolan's Oppenheimer has added Alex Wolf, who was last seen in Old to the ever, ever expanding stars to, to this, uh, um, this biopic. Um, now that I think Knives Out 2 has finished probably shooting now, everybody All needs All of that cast can move across. Yeah. You just move across now. <laughs> yeah, he just keeps adding more and more people. What roles they're going to have, we still don't know. We only really know that Killian Murphy as J. Robert Oppenheimer in the key role. But all the extra cast over the past few weeks... Unknown roles, probably just like one scene background scientists. We don't care. We don't know. We just love the fact that he's giving everyone in Hollywood a chance to have some work. Bless him. He's doing the, he's doing the Lord's work in hiring everyone in Hollywood. <laughs> one of the earliest examples of the modern legacy sequel tentpoles that's become commonplace was 2010's Tron Legacy. And now there's, well, there's some buzz started to generate about another Tron film. And that buzz has come from, well, let's take it with a pinch of salt because it's come from Jared Leto. Okay. <laughs> this generation's Olivier. Oh, talking of which, there's a really bad word on Mobius, by the way, from those yes. I know who've seen it. Really poor word. I mean, this, this, this news has come while he's doing the press circuit for Mobius. and People are more excited about the fact that he's talking about a potential Tron movie than his own new film. That says a lot. <laughs> the last official news that we had on a Tron, another Tron film was back in 2020 when Garth Davis and actor Jared Leto have both come on board to revive the project, but nothing has been heard about it until this week. Leto has said, I'm a super fan of Tron, and we're working hard on Tron with our incredible partners at Disney. Just an amazing group of creative people. We're getting closer. We're getting closer and closer, and who knows, something may be coming sooner than later. If Morbius doesn't make box office, I think it's going to be later rather than sooner, to be honest <laughs> with you, because I think they'll be waiting until they can get you out of your contract and get someone else in. I have heard 
rumours that it was a, a Disney Plus project. And that would seem the safe bet. I, I think that that would be the best place to go because I think that the Tron universe, whilst I'd love to see another big screen outing, I think you could explore a lot more in a TV series. And I think it would suit that episodic format. Well, it didn't, it didn't set the box offence on fire, did it? No. Even though fans were clamouring for it for, for absolutely years, uh, it didn't get the love from uh, um, the general public that, that everyone thought it was going to get. It is interesting that the reason why Disney stopped pursuing any potential f- future Tron projects was because they basically says, we've got Marvel and we've got Star Wars in the bag, so we've got all the big screen sci-fi that we need. And then the Star Wars films got um, quite lackluster responses uh, towards the end of the run and have kind of vanished out of the box office framework. And now they're starting to talk about Tron again. It's like, okay, so maybe you shouldn't have given up on it back then. But hey, who knows? Um, Daniela Melchior, who we saw marvellously as Ratcatcher in The Suicide Squad, has now joined the cast of, and I know you'll be excited, the next yep. Fast and Furious film. <laughs> <laughs> wow, another film that I won't be seeing her in. <laughs> yeah, she's going to join the family, joining the new cast member, Jason Momoa, who's indicated that he's going to be playing a villain in the Fast 10 or whatever they decide to call it, fast ten your seatbelts, or oh, I like that one. It sounds like a um, a really bad number plate, doesn't it? <laughs> or fur ten us furious. I don't know. It's See? it's a it's a um, not only a crippling <laughs> of the English language, it's a, a complete abomination of the English language. But hey, it, I'm not the audience. There are people out there gagging for it. Character details are under wraps at this point in time, as is plot. Of course, plot's under wraps. There's no plot to a Fast and Furious film. Anyone who thinks <laughs> yeah. there is clearly They've hasn't not got the cigarette one. packet to write on yet. But um, Justin Lin is returning to direct all the key regulars, Vin Diesel, Michelle Rodriguez, Tyrese Gibson, Ludacris, and Sung Kang are expected back. And it's targeting May the 19th, 2023 for release. We know that uh, the deal has gone through with MGM and Amazon. So the, the big anticipation is of what they're going to do with Bond. Anyway, the first spin-off has been discussed and mentioned already, and it's not what we thought it is. Yes, it's an Amazon TV show, but it is, in fact, a competition show. I've caught the brief news on this one. and it, Isn't this the, the Bond, Around the World Bond competition show? Where it's, like a, it's, like a, it's, like, it's like an 80 Days Around the World aspect. Yeah, it's... Uh, 007's Road to a Million, um, that's basically uh, race across the world with a with a James Bond twist. So, as we're guessing from the title, there doesn't seem to be any mystery in the title. There's there's a, a million pound prize on a globe trotting quest with physical and mental challenges. It's currently unknown if it's going to involve diving out of aeroplanes, skiing down mountains, speedboats through Louisiana. But uh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. But uh, it's not quite what everybody was anticipating as the first Bond crossover. It feels to me, I mean, even, even though Amazon say they've been working on this for years and the, even before the deal was arranged, it gets the feeling that it wasn't anything to do with Bond to start with. It was a generic project that they've just now seen the opportunity to tag the name to. Let's see. Yeah, I, I'm hoping they don't work the franchises that they've got their hands on into the ground. That's the big worry, isn't it? That they're going to, they're just going to, Water down. I'm yeah. looking at you, Sony. The core of yeah. the franchise. Yeah. Have you heard this story? Now, both of us couldn't bring ourselves realistically because we we're both trying to hang on to our sanity to go <laughs> and see the Nan movie. 
But have you heard this intriguing story about about the Nan movie that seems to have uh, filtered through? Nobody's it's not set the world on fire, but it's it's quite an interesting story. So I don't know if you saw in any of the publicity that they didn't mention the director of the film. No, I hadn't seen that. No. So check out the posters or any any publicity. Uh, the director apparently. The story is, is that the Nan movie was a completely different affair entirely. Interestingly, yeah, I've just brought up the Wikipedia page and the box out in the corner, which usually has all the production crew, no director. No director. So apparently the story was, is that the Nan movie was going to be something very, very different. It wasn't going to be the a typical comedy character goes on holiday, as from what we know, that's what it, uh, that's what it turned out to be. But it was going to be a story of how Nan became sort of the grotesque that she is and was set in uh, set uh, in a kind of a flashback, which is sort of touched upon in the film, but that wasn't the story. But uh, the money people got scared when they saw the cut and sort of demanded that it was it was just a, a, an elongated sketch. <laughs> so that's what I've heard, how much of that is true. But there has been some images which have uh, found their way online of seeing Catherine Tate, not as Nan, but as Nan as a younger woman. So interesting to see what happened with that one. But it does seem that initially they didn't, they weren't getting the film that they thought they were getting, and uh, did a fast double take, and the directors removed herself from that project. Very interesting. First photo has been released from a film named Goldfinger, aka Once Upon a Time in Hong Kong, which is a film that is going to see the reteaming of Infernal Affairs co-stars Tony Leung and Andy Lau two decades after that marvellous film that inspired oh, uh, Scorsese's the, the Departed. The story will reportedly depict cutthroat machinations between Hong Kong's business elites amidst the backdrop of the tail end of the British colonial rule and focusing on the rise and fall of a fictional Hong Kong company and its chairman across 15 years with losses of billions and murders being committed. Those names involved and yeah, the, the production that it's coming from has me definitely interested in keeping a lookout for this. I do love Tony Leung and Andy Lau, and it would be great to see them re-team again. Great film. I never saw the sequel. I've not either, but I have heard that the sequel's good, but, but unnecessary. Not, not up to the standard of Infer- Infernal yeah. Affairs, which was just a marvellous film. Absolutely marvellous. So, Rawson Marshall Thurber, who gave us Red Notice, uh, has sparked a bit of a bidding war for his live-action Voltron film. Yes. And, um, do you remember when Cloverfield came out? It was that uh, you know JJ was Abraham's is always good at, at keeping the mystery in the box. That people thought that that was the Voltron film for some time. Yeah, it, it, I mean the Voltron film has been rumored so many times and been linked to so many other projects that turned out to not be to be Voltron that I'm still skeptical about whether this is actually going to happen. I have some idea but no interest in who Voltron is. Well, it is. I mean, what's interesting in this is the, you know, the original c- cartoon, which centred on five young pilots in a battalion named the Robot Lions, which are vehicles that join together to form the mega robot known as Voltron. And it's inspired so many other things through the years. Uh, but Netflix have been behind the rebooted anime of recent years, 2016's Voltron Legendary Defender. You would right. have thought that Netflix would have been in the bidding war, but no, they're not. It's uh, primarily Warner's, Universal and Amazon are the big studios who are challenging a few other smaller studios to try to grab this. Netflix seem to want no involvement, which it seems strange. Seems though they've basically got the anime side of it. Yeah. I'm not sure that there's a huge market for it. I think Voltron, particularly in the West, is a very culty 
kind of anime series that you have to have been there to have any care for it now? Yeah, it's not something I really know about. I've just got some quick snippets of news. Uh, Crazy Rich Asians is getting a sequel written by Amy Wang. Uh, Timothy Chalamet, Luna Guagagnino are reuniting for Bones at MGM. The Moon Knight writer is developing a Nova project for Marvel. And it's being teased whether it will happen, but there will be a sequel to Encanto. But no surprises there. Streaming news, and in particular to do with services themselves, Netflix are trialling a programme to add up to two extra member accounts on top of your main one for around 2 to $3 extra per month in a way to curb general password sharing. They plan to flag up any accounts that seem to suspiciously share passwords, i.e. logging on from multiple IP addresses in different locations, for example, and rather than directly blocking the accounts, offer those accounts the chance to upgrade before doing so. The different profiles which you currently have on Netflix, some people erroneously think is their way of allowing sharing of accounts between households, but it's supposed to just be for within the same household. Yeah. So you're not you're not supposed to pass it to your cousin Ted in another part of the country and just say you can use that or your, your mate Bob who you went to university with, but I haven't seen for six years and he's still got your password, but you don't mind because it doesn't affect you. Now, Netflix have done estimates that this would generate them an extra $1.6 billion revenue that's lost through account sharing. Now, as someone who only shares with my own own household, I'd consider subbing a small addition for the sharing option. I think it's a great idea. Yeah. And give me the, you know, the valid ways to share it. However, I would do that so that my sister wouldn't have to pay for her account and sh- like we're only paying 2 extra dollars or 3 extra dollars. Yeah. In order to get her extra one. So I'm not sure that Netflix have actually done the the maths crunching and worked out how many people would then take the opportunity to pay less for multiple accounts across different households. Interesting, because the Netflix cost, subscription cost is going up very soon. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure that they've worked out the maths, but they're trialing it in three locations worldwide at the moment to see whether that maths adds up. If it doesn't add up for them, then don't expect it to get rolled out across the whole world. But it does show that they're, they're starting to realise that they can't keep allowing people to have shared passwords um, in different locations if it's going to cost them so much. And meanwhile, as the Halo TV series has become Paramount Plus's highest viewed news show so far, here in the UK, we're still wondering when we will get the network here so we can watch new Star Trek content and ignore pretty much everything else on there. (laughs) Well, don't expect it too soon. And be ready for the gripes when Strange New Worlds launches, as the initial plans that they released last year of by summer 2022 have now morphed into by the end of 2022 for 60 European markets, which is as vague as you can get at this point in time. So you'd think you'd think they'd figure it out and just go let Netflix or Amazon have it as, they, as they're doing with Picard. Yeah, until they can actually launch their own service. But yeah, th- there's many of us in the UK who... I know that we had the option of watching it on Pluto TV, but you had to tune in on Pluto TV, a streaming service. You had to tune in at 9 p.m. on a Saturday night, which wasn't ideal for people who work Saturdays. Mm. And Yeah, uh, and that know, seems to not be the point of, of being able to access it. Yeah, a streaming service that you could have to watch at dedicated channel times makes no sense to us. I th- yeah, I've still not watched all of this season of Discovery as a result. And I've heard that it's a really good season. And I can't wait to watch it. But the potential is that by the time I get chance to watch it, I'll have moved on to something else and I'll never bother catching up. And they've lost me as an audience member. 
it, well, that's it. The, the biggest disservice they're doing is the disservice to, to fans internationally rather than just the US. It's, there's an easy option. Let it go back to Netflix as originally planned or let Strange New World go to Amazon because yeah. they've already got content there. Um, somebody with cooler heads than ours will hopefully see this thing through, yeah. but I doubt it. Quick news just to mention that there's rumours going around that Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness will feature a trailer before it, which has been long awaited because we need to see what this is going to look like. And that will be James Cameron's avatar. Now, I will specify that this is still just rumours. There's nothing confirmed. And you might end up turning up to your local cinema to find that it's not on there. Don't blame us that people are speculating. But it would make sense that they want to... Because people are starting to wonder whether Avatar is going to be worth it. Is it actually real? Like we've said, you know, never write off James Cameron. He'll always deliver something spectacular, even if it, it's spectacular for the big screen, but not for at home market. And it'll make sense for them to want to tap into the largest audience that they can. And Doctor Strange is going to have a large audience, particularly on its opening weekend. So it's one of those news items that you can see where the rumours come from. You can kind of believe the rumour. But still, hold your reservations until we get some confirmation. As soon as we know, we will let you know. Before we call it quits on the news, Andy, did you see the deleted, the Batman scene that reveals uh, an unseen Arkham prisoner cameo? Yes. Uh, I solved the three clues myself without having to look online for the answers. I was quite pleased okay. with myself. With that. Is that what I it do... was, the ending? Was that what you got? Yeah. At the, end, at the end of the film, all that pops up on the screen is a brief website address. And you go to that website address and you get three little uh, riddle clues to work through. Once you answer the three riddles, you get, you get to see this extended clip. And it's an interesting clip. And it's one of them that it teases what this proto-Joker character, it, he's not the Joker yet, this is a damaged inmate, could be. But you can see why it was taken out as well. It's very Michael Mann, Manhunter. Yeah, that's what I thought from... from uh, I think it would have slowed down the film even more. Yeah. And it did remind me of the scene in Manhunter where we meet Lecter. Yeah. Uh, it did feel unnecessary. It felt more like fan service. Uh, and I think there would have been, it would have taken an audience out because I think they'd have wanted to see that yeah. guy be the villain more than the villain that we got. Yeah. So it's one of them that you completely understand why they removed the character, that, that whole scene from the film and just kept the little tease of the character towards the end. I'm interested to see what that version of the character could do later down the line. I don't want him for the next film. I want them to keep exploring something different before they bring that character completely to what that character is supposed to be. Yeah, absolutely. And that is this week's The News. Of course, it has been the 2022 Academy Awards, the Oscars. And Andy and I are going to tell you all about it because, to be honest, it, it was pretty dull. Nothing much happened. Pretty uneventful. I mean, I stayed up all night for absolutely nothing to happen. Um, let's let's just talk about the ceremony in general first and finishing with what's the okay. big news of the ceremony. And then we'll go on to the awards. So, as you know, each year I sit awake and I watch it in detail. And the past few years has been long drawn out. Um, hostless, a bit chaotic and a bit disorganised. So the show itself this year, they, they decided to go for the tighter pace, which is why they removed eight awards from the main show, which we've talked about before on the show and we don't agree with. Despite removing those eight awards, the show ran for three hours, 42 minutes. Yes, 42 minutes over schedule, the longest since 2018. <laughs> so there's a good start, eh? The eight <laughs> awards that weren't heard yeah. live. Yeah, they tried. They tried to really sharpen it. 
they they desperately tried to pull it in. The eight awards that they didn't air live was made worse by the fact that they decided to tweet out the results of them as they were given away an hour before the ceremony took place. So anyone who was on Twitter already knew what they were. And then they were going to add edited highlights of them, like giving out the awards, which became pointless as they started talking about and the nominations for it's like, but we already know that June won. But the nominations for we already know that June won. What you're what you're showing this for when you've already told the world the extra padding to the show of um, adding in that Bruno song, um, albeit a bit changed and lacking the impact that the song generally has. And even fans of the song were, were commenting on Twitter is like, what have they done to the Bruno song? Uh, the Bond tribute, which was presented by. Um, a skateboarder and some sports stars because they couldn't find anyone connected with the Bond franchise to do it. Not even Judy Dench and Javier Bardem who were in the audience. Um, and the Godfather <laughs> piece, all absolutely pointless fluff. Yeah, yeah nothing you're saying, Andy, is, uh, uh, is, is much of a surprise, really. Having hosts definitely made a difference and it started off quite snappy, despite the fact that Schumer is still absolutely terrible. And my criticism of her on Twitter resulted in a random from Liverpool, telling me to rein my neck in. I was like, mate, I've got an opinion, you've got an opinion, why don't you rein your neck in? Then there was the in, in memoriam section, which, um, if you remember last year when I spoke about it, I said how they went for an upbeat tempo, which seemed a bit weird. Yeah. It went even worse this year. Yeah. It was seriously an upbeat tempo, with a happy, jolly gospel choir, and dancing. And I was just like, what, what are you doing? This is supposed to be the somber moments that we reflect on these people who we've lost. And they're just like, da, 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 da. everybody's dead. Da. And it was just, wow. Oh, boy, if you could only see what crash. I was seeing him do that. It was. <laughs> so Busby Berkeley. Um, yeah, there was just, it was just oddly, oddly sort of shoehorned in. Normally, you know, like the BAFTAs did it. They, they have a little bit of uh, solemn reflection for, for people that we've lost, usually followed by by uh, applause, appreciation of that person's work and the fact that they are missed. But yeah, it was it was all a bit. Mm. I, I I'm not a huge fan of the Oscars. I I will watch the edited highlights now as opposed to stay up late. I unless I'm being paid to to be on radio at, at five o'clock in the morning to do it like I, I used to be. No, because I generally generally walk away feeling, well, that was a big waste of time. There was no real surprises in the results. No. I mean, yes, it was. I mean, we both said uh, we thought Power of the Dog would be the winner. But uh, did you say that? Oh, did, I know I said I thought Power of the Dog. You were. I said Coda. I think, were you, was your money on Coda right it from was, the get-go? Yeah. yeah. Right. I thought Power of the Dog. And we were both correct that Jane Campion was going to pull it. Yeah. There was no major surprises with the awards. We'll go through them in a minute. There was the 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 fan favourite hashtag Twitter Brigade Award um, for the uh, like the fan favourite film and the fan favourite moment on film, which they were given the unceremonious treatment that they deserved as just being dumped on commercial breaks as it just popped up on screen before it went to commercial. Absolutely no celebration around it and nothing because they've realised that obviously a certain hashtag brigade out there who I love to comment on had managed to hijack it to get um, the moment that the Flash turned back time and Army of the Dead as the two fan favourites. Something now which that intolerable <laughs> cult um, on Twitter are thinking that means Zach has actually won an Oscar. He hasn't. It wasn't. It was a hashtag 
fan favourite with no award. Stop thinking it means anything, guys. The fact that Cinderella was second place thanks to that other campaign to show that films that are universally hated can easily become popular with a hashtag. Should let you know, but you, but then we get to the news. <laughs> well, there, there you go, Andy. There you go. I'll just interject on that. It is is never give it over to a referendum. <laughs> you know, because the popularist, uh, most ridiculous vote will always, always win. So, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, it, it, that's the kind of thing that 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 the Sun do and the Daily Mirror do with their awards. Yeah, let the people have a say. Uh, not really. Because it's asking for the best of people rather than the Oscar. Listen, I think you know they've got to make that connection with an audience, and, and hashtags and and tweeting through a show are, are probably the only way to really do it. But this is an award by peers to peers. It doesn't it doesn't mean anything, and quickly forgotten. Even if it was a film that you wanted to win, it carries no credence. Now there was a risk that today Twitter would have been filled with that cult flooding it, saying restore some universe or something and like give this guy like his Oscar, etc. However, <laughs> something happened on the awards last night, which has dominated all the social feeds and all the news. And that was Will Smith, who should have been given an award for the best bitch slap of Chris Rock. Uh, Chris Rock, <laughs> while, while presenting an award, was doing his usual jibes at various members of the like celebrity audience. And he made a jibe towards Jada Pinkett Smith because she's got a shaven head at the moment due to her uh, alopecia condition that she's got. And so she had it shaved back and he made a G.I. Jane reference. And Will was originally laughing at this. You could see that like he, he was finding everything funny, but she wasn't. And when he cut back to Chris Rock as he continues going and then like you see him getting a bit anxious and he's going, oh, no, it's OK. Uh, it was just a it was just a simple joke. Uh, and then Will Smith got up, walked straight up to the front of the stage and smacked him one, and then walked off. And you, you're watching it live going, what, have I just, was that real? Did that just happen? One of my mates who was watching alongside, like sent me a private message, like, did we, ju- did we just witness that? And it was like, yes, that happened. And everyone's online's going like, was that fake? Was it scripted? And, you know, Chris Rock's reaction, he had a, kept a smile on his face, and the consummate professional tried to defuse the situation, didn't retaliate, and tried to just get on with things. But Will Smith then starts yelling out. And in the US, it was blanked out. They blanked out the audio. But everywhere else in the world, the audio went through live. And we got to hear his very angry, get my wife's name out of your mouth. He said that once. And Chris was like, whoa, it was just a G.I. Jane joke. And he's like, keep my wife out your mouth. The tension could be felt. It was awkward. It felt really like, whoa, what's gone on here? And it really put a downer on the last hour of the whole show because everything from that point on just felt too surreal. Well, that's right. It changed the mood of the entire show. And you're right. that People thought it was a, a, a part of it. People were still laughing yeah. when Will Smith got up. You could hear the audience laughing along. Yeah. And then the, the, the bitch slap happened. And, and people were still kind of laughing until he started calling out from from the audience and and i i've kind of think that when the camera cuts to will smith that he's got one of those very kind of false nervous laughs that you're supposed to do when you know that the camera's cutting it didn't it didn't look very convincing especially from uh, somebody who won best actor 
it, it looked a bit awkward, but uh, uh, Jada Pinkett Smith's face was 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 thunder. Yes, and it's an odd one because I've been doing radio all day today for the Beeb. They've all asked me that question. You know, they've not talked about much else. I mean, thankfully, <laughs> the last interview that I've done, we had to start with with that story, but went on to talk about uh, about the rest of the evening. But it's dominated the dominated the night. Now, is it reprehensible that he did that? Is he defending his wife? Does that stand up for it? it it's a hard one to say, and I think you can come down on both sides. You have to ask the question, what would you do if you yeah. felt that your wife was being ridiculed in front of millions of people as well as your peers? Yeah. You know, at what point do you do you break? At what point does your blood boil? Now, is it very professional? Absolutely not. To go on television seen by a worldwide audience, millions of, of people, and, and lose it with the presenter. But I kind of get it as well. It's It's a tough one. Because would, what would I have done? I, I can only cut down to what would I have done in that situation? Yeah. It's worth noting that there is history to take into context here as well. Oh, is there? I wasn't aware of it. Back when Chris Rock hosted the 2016 Oscars, and quite a lot of the um, black actor and director community were boycotting the Oscars with the hashtag Oscar So White, Chris Rock, in his intro like skit, said Jada Pinkett Smith has joined others in boycotting the Oscars. Well, you re- you have to be invited to boycott something. That would be l- like me trying to boycott. I can't remember which celebrity he said, but such and such a celebrity's panties. I wasn't invited. And so there's been a bit of animosity ever since then between the group. Right. Okay. And maybe Chris shouldn't have chose her as a target of, yes, it was a, a little side swipe joke like you kind of expect at these events, but maybe he should have thought about that. That's if he came up with a script for it himself. If um, someone else came up with a script, I get a feeling he's going to be sacking his scriptwriter. But like you say, how would you react if you were in that situation? And it was made even more bizarre because Will Smith then went on to win one of the awards and did an acceptance yes. speech where he was showing a bit of remorse for what he'd done and referencing it, but not necessarily apologising for it. And it just felt awkward. He did. He kind of apologised to the... Um... Uh, academy but no way did he uh, did he apologize to to chris rock at all uh, and i'm sure that there's yeah you know th- there's nothing being carried out the lapd aren't investigated because rock isn't pressing charges but yeah it was awkward but i you know and it was especially awkward as you said that he that he won best actor but you're gonna walk away from this this oscars with with that story um, and also <laughs> just the fact that liza minnelli blew it in the last minute as well be having the uh uh, envelope the, right, the wrong way, which oh, is kind of would have been the lead story. Any other one where she accidentally gave away the best picture by holding the envelope the wrong way on camera. The two heroes of that evening with the Liza Minnelli aspect, she was uh, paired up with Lady Gaga and how wonderfully touching it was to see how much care that Lady Gaga was showing towards Liza Minnelli. Yeah. It's like, don't worry, girl, I've got you. And it's like, you're such a genuinely pure person. And then with the altercation between Smith and Rock, Denzel Washington, during, when it cut to break, mediated between the pair and calmed the situation down. And I'd love to know what he said to calm Will down because he spent pretty much the whole break with him and managed to get him back onto like a, a you know, back into a smiling personality and got him ready for his acceptance speech. So Denzel, absolute hero. As you'd expect, you would genuinely expect such a legend 
to be such a hero. But yeah, Lady Gaga with Liza Minnelli really taking care to make sure that like it didn't it didn't go the way of the um, infamous La La Land uh, yeah. award <laughs> of a few years ago. Um, it was a it was a weird ceremony. Yeah. The, the whole tightening back didn't work because it was longer than before, and it was just it just lost that pizzazz and that specialness that the Oscars have in attempt to become the MTV Movie Awards by having celebrity cameos that have no, nothing to do with film. But the awards themselves. Okay. Now, like you've said, no real surprises. So let's run through them, yeah. shall we? So best picture, as we've said, Coda. Now, I had my heart set on this. I love that film. Uh, I would have been happy with, with Jane Campion's Power of the Dog to also get it. But Coda, as soon as Jane Campion won Best Director, I knew Coda was getting Best Picture because that's how it seems to have gone over the past few years. Yeah, they don't generally like to give Best Director and Best Film uh, to the same movie. I wasn't surprised. I, it, it was between those two. You look at the other nominees and, and it was always going to be between those two. Uh, Will Smith for Best Actor for King Richard, as we've said, which led to uh, an acceptance speech that you were still... I didn't take in much of what the acceptance speech was because I was still flabbergasted yeah, that he was still trying to do an acceptance speech. <laughs> uh, Jessica Chastain, as I predicted for Tammy Faye, uh, which also got makeup on her as well as Best Actress. It's the kind of performance that Oscar likes. They love to see the real person story. You know, they love to see yeah. uh, uh, an actor or an actress go through a transformation to become somebody else. That's the performance du jour. That's what they, they love. They love, yeah. they love the latex. They love the heavy makeup for that sort of transformation. It's historically Oscar bait. Not to say there wasn't a bad performance. Don't get me wrong, but, but that's what they go for. Yeah. The support roles, Troy Kotzer got the best actor, uh, best supporting actor for Coda. And Ariana DeBose, as expected, got best support for West Side Story. Yeah, no surprises there. Both of them were pretty much the, the odds-on favourites. Uh, screenplay awards went to Belfast and Coda. Again, they were the odds-on favourites. Like I say, there was nothing that really shocked you. The animated, well, of course, it went to Disney and, of course, it went to Encanto, despite the fact that there was at least two better animated films within there that they could have done. Uh, I totally agree. I, I think I think Encanto was the safe, safe bet. But uh, it wasn't particularly yeah. the best movie. What made it worse with the Encanto Award is it was presented by some ex-Disney princesses who've done live-action adaptations of Disney works who started off a whole thing saying animation is for children. And one of the animated things that was nominated was clearly not for children, and that's the documentary feature, Flea. And it felt like... A it felt like it was just setting up that, yeah, this was going to be Disney for it's cheap and cheerful and yay, typical Encanto. Don't get me wrong. I love Encanto, but Mitchell's versus the Machines and Flea was so much more deserving, in my opinion, because it is all opinion. No, I, I, I've got to agree. I've got to agree with you. Uh, best score. If you remember when we walked out to the screening of June, I said that's Zimmer's best score that he's done to date. And I, I, I certainly hope he gets an Oscar for it. Of course, Zimmer got the Oscar for the best score. Uh, best song uninspiringly went to Billie Eilish's No Time to Die. Uh, which we said that, that Bond would have to get something. Yeah. We kind of guess that, that it might be for best, best song. song. Uh, June also scored sound, production design, cinematography, editing and visual effects. Four of those awards we didn't get to see handed out until the edited highlights and we already knew that it had been won. So June overall took the most awards but had the least screen time during the ceremony. 
as a result of them chopping yeah. eight categories. And most people aren't aware that Dune was the big winner yeah. of the night. Uh, Cruella, as we predicted a few weeks ago, costume design, because it's all about costumes. Uh, Jenny Beaven getting up with her... I mean, she's got when, when she won for Mad Max Fury Road, she was wearing a dress that like a dress up that was inspired by the film and she did the same again last night what a creative creative costume designer she's absolutely marvelous and her acceptance speech was so heartfelt and you know she's a wonderful wonderful person and i'm always happy when i see her getting nominated let alone winning awards uh, international feature was drive my car the best shorts uh, went to long goodbye which i've seen and thoroughly recommends that's the riz ahmed one Windshield Wiper, which again, animated one. I've seen this one and it's beautiful animation packed with so many details. And the documentary Queen of Basketball and the documentary feature, something that I didn't quite gel with, but uh, I believe that you enjoyed a lot more, Summer of Soul. Yeah, I love that film. Uh, I was so pleased. Uh, It did feel as though it ought to have been given than necessarily given because they've got to be careful on this one. I think there might have been a little bit of tokenism about it. Yeah. Uh, I thought, I think Flea is the better documentary out of all of those. Yes. But I, I I can I can live with Summer of Soul. I'm surprised with Flea not picking up at least what, because it got nominated in three different categories. Best animation, mm. best documentary, and, be, and international feature. And I would have thought it would have got one of them. Yeah. But no, it didn't manage to get anything. I really think, it, it, if anything, it should have got the animated one. Uh, but overall... If you had gone to the like to the bookies and put a, a, an accumulator bet and guessed all the awards, you'd be walking home with millions now because that was pretty much all the predictable awards that you could have got. Yeah, the good money, all the good money was on on those movies. Ceremony itself next year, I think they need to return back to what it used to be back in two thousand sixteen. They need to bring those eight categories back in. Get rid of the bump and garbage. They're going to overrun yeah. regardless what they do because this whole retweaking and reshuffling was for viewing figures and also to make it tighter, which it clearly didn't. So just return back to normal and let the people who love films be your core audience to target, not your general public who want to watch BTS talk about their favourite moments in film because that has no relevance to anything. So we'll be back again next year. <laughs> When we will talk about the Oscars then, and and um, see if it's as lively as this year's. Uh, sadly, an Oscars that will always be Slapgate. Yes, Slapgate. Uh, it it will always be known for that one incident. Uh, there's there's already memes and gifs everywhere. The Batman slapping Robin gif has now been replaced with <laughs> Will Smith slapping Chris Rock. Um, before we get before we move off the awards. Let's just also mention the other awards that took place this weekend. And we're not going to cover these in detail. And that's the Razzies. Now, the Razzies are a bit of jokey fun to poke a bit of like it, poking the ribs of the worst of Hollywood. But what I want to raise is one of the awards that they introduced in 2014 is their Razzie Redeemer, which is anyone who they've already given an award to for bad performance or bad outings. If they shine in a film, they do a Redeemer award for them. And this year, Will Smith run for King Richard. Maybe he was still angry about being mentioned in the Razzies, and that's why he slapped Chris Rock for no reason. <laughs> um, who knows? But I like the Razzie Redeemer Award, because it's it's the Razzies turning around and actually doing something positive and honouring something when someone's turned themselves around. Now, it's, it's going to be interesting to see whether the other person who had an interesting award at the Razzies will, have a, a, will get a Redeemer sometime down the line, because Bruce Willis actually won 
in his own category, the worst performance by Bruce Willis this year. Well, that was a surprise. And why has he got his own category? Well, there was eight films that he was in over the qualifying period. Cosmic Sin, American Siege, Apex, Apex, Deadlock, Fortress, Midnight in the Switchgrass, Out of Death and Survive the Game. I've heard of three of them. But I was gobsmacked to find out that Bruce Willis has literally been selling his soul to Satan this past year. He must have a huge tax bill or he's got (laughs) Nicolas Cage's agent. One of the two because (laughs) you're doing that amount of work to feel relevant. Come on, Bruce. Somebody cast Bruce back in a major feature. Come on, Bruce. Yeah. We love you. We've always loved Bruce. He'll get his teeth into as well. Yeah, we, we, he's got right. acting chops. Just don't turn him on to give horse eye and, and shoot a bunch of people. Let's get yeah. let's get Bruce back into pictures. So one thing's for certain, it's been an interesting, basically, closure to the awards season this weekend. And it's going to be one that we're going to be talking about online and in the general public for years to come. You never know. It'll be next week's The News. This is The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And if this is your first time and you're kind of thinking, can I hear some more of these crazy guys? Well, of course you can by heading over to your favorite podcast platform and searching for The Film File. Once you've done that, hit the subscribe button and remember to leave a like. Say something wonderful. Say something wonderful about us. We don't mind. And if you want to know even more about The Film File family, all you have to do is do this. Head on over to Twitter, follow us at Filmfile UK and get engaged in any conversation that goes on over there. Uh, head over to other social media platforms where we're not as active as on Twitter, but occasionally I, I surprise people by dropping something. Just look for Filmfile UK, you'll find us. Or uh, you can email us thoughts, suggestions, queries. If you've got a project that you want us to look at, fire it our way. We're happy to watch things, we're happy to feedback things, we're happy to get involved. Also, if there's a film that you can't remember the title of, but you know a few small details, by all means, fire us over some bits and pieces of what you know, and we'll put our great minds together and then go, no, we don't know either. Uh, Hopefully, be able to work out what the film is. I had one of these at work the other day, and it was one of the members of staff just said, have you seen a film that it's got... it always starts with that, doesn't it? Do you ever seen that? There's a film I, think, I want to I think it's set during World War One or World War Two, possibly World War Two. And there's some soldiers who stay in a castle. I just went the keep. It was like it might be that. And they're like the castle's yeah, got the like a demonic possession. I was like the keep. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, is Michael it Nazi Man. soldiers? He was like, yeah, yeah, Nazi, Nazi soldiers. Like the keep. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just like, there you go. That's what our skill is. We can just pick it up from the base details. So fire over if you've got a similar film that you can't quite remember the details of and you want us to see not only what it's called, I will even go the extra mile and track it down and see where you can actually find to screen it. Send that email across, podcast at filmfile.uk. And it's now time for this week's deep dive. I guess we could have done this a few weeks ago, but there's been, there's been a lot of buzz about this film retrospectively since the last James Bond film. We're going to be talking about 1969's sixth entry into the James Bond series. It starred not Sean Connery, nor did it star Roger Moore, but in fact George Lazenby, arguably by many to be the best James Bond film ever. And we're talking about On Her Majesty's Secret Service. The new star, the different Bond, the name's Lazenby. George Lazenby, 
and he's got it made. The different Bond woman. The name's Rick, Diana Rick. This one's got class and style. Telly Savalas. Gabriel Fazetti. And 007 times more excitement. If you think you know your Bond, think again. This one's different. It's true! <laughs> the plot of this one, and this is an interesting plot for a Bond film. Bond faces again Blofeld, this time played by Telly Savalas, who is planning to hold the world to ransom by a threat to render all food plants and livestock infertile through the actions of a group of brainwashed angels of death. Along the way, Bond meets and falls in love and eventually marrying the Contessa Teresa de Vincenzo, played by Diana Rigg. The only Bond film to have been directed by editor Peter R. Hunt. It starred after a search Australian male model George Lazenby, who had at that point had no previous acting credits. And during the making of this film, that Lazenby announced that he would only play Bond for one time only. It's been said that this film was a failure at the box office, which is incorrect because this film did really well. It's just that. Well, why promote a Bond film if Bond has already decided that he's going to quit? He wasn't fired, which is legend. He didn't get on with Diana Rigg and vice versa, which is not a myth. But the film is successful. And as I said, seen by many to be one of the best Bond films ever. And in an alternate universe, you've got to think if Sean Connery had done this movie, then that would have been a fantastic swan song as opposed to Diamonds Are Forever. There's a lot of love for this film and it's referenced all the way through the latest Bond movie, as well as in Inception by Christopher Nolan, who calls it his favourite Bond film. Andy, love for On Her Majesty's Secret Service, or should it be buried into nostalgia? Oh, I've got a lot of love for On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Uh, this was one that was quite late to coming to see, because during the early years, you know, if it, if it wasn't Roger Moore or Sean Connery, I didn't think it was a proper Bond. And so I kind of avoided this one until I was in my late teens and then finally sat down and watched it and regretted waiting so long to watch the film. Yes, Lazenby, it has to be said, is not as good in the role as Connery, but he wasn't bad. A load no, of people say terrible, that he, he? he was terrible, but he wasn't. He had a charm. He had a stoic nature. And for a first time actor, he plays it cool, suave and calmly sure. And the action sequences in this are what I loved when I watched them in my early teens. They seem more convincing than Connery's were. Lazenby throwing himself, sometimes literally, into the task. And his romancing and portrayal of a Bond who turns his back on the service in order to marry is convincing and strong right through to that final heartbreaking ending. It's a film that, when I first heard about it, I'd heard that oh, it, he only did it once because it was so bad and no one liked it and it made no money. That was that nonsense. It made 10 times its budget back. It was one of the biggest films of the year that it got released. And whilst audiences might have left feeling a bit let down, like disappointed, that's because of that heartbreaking ending. People mistook people walking out of a, a theatre after a Bond film 
feeling a bit downbeat as it being a bad film when it wasn't. It was because that ending absolutely devastates you. I mean, it devastated me at the time because uh, we spoke last week when we spoke about American Werewolf in London about one of our crushes, which was uh, the marvellous Jenny Agatha. But Diana Rigg was another one of our great crushes. Yeah. From her work on The Avengers, fell in love with her there. And so seeing her in this film, we, we fell in love with her as well. As Bond is falling in love with her, we're like, we understand why you're falling in love with her. She's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, she is a fantastic screen presence. And to some extent, she has not. And again, not that um, uh, Lazenby was bad. He's, he's not bad. After watching the film again, he's limited. But he's uh, but he, he he pulls it out of the bag in in the last scene. But she is such a great screen presence that you know you, yeah. again you've always got to go in your head and think what would what would Connery have made of this because she is the perfect screen foil. You yeah. can see why Bond falls in love with her, and you can see why she's missed at the end because she she is a, a, a fabulous fabulous actress and 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 delivers a great and powerful performance in this this is the film that sparked the theory that bond is different characters that every different bond is a different agent and the bond the bond identity is given to whoever holds the 007 license and it's all because of a throwaway line to camera in the opening thing where he says this never happened to the other fellow while looking directly into the lens as well <laughs> yeah it was intended as a sly joke to the audience to let them know that they're not trying to sneak someone else in as though nothing was had changed. But it's become part of that whole conspiracy aspect of like, ah, well, maybe Bond is a different person in each film. And maybe maybe it's a, it, it is like it's not like the same character and there's no continuity. This will be argued constantly, but it's all because of this film, because they didn't want to just make it go, oh, just pretend this is Sean Connery. They wanted to, to go, yeah, we know it's different. I love pretty much everything about this film i love the themes i love the action sequences the skiing skiing action sequence is phenomenal which additionally they were intending to have a moment in the skiing sequence where he skis off a cliff edge and a parachute opens and he parachutes away but they couldn't get the production for it which as we now know was then used later on by the roger moore era of bond for that famous opening with the Union Jack parachute. Yes, yeah. I mean, th- that's the thing about Bond films that uh, uh, if you read about about production, they they'll save ideas. If they can't do it at that particular point, they will they'll bring it back at uh, at some other point. Also linked with the whole aspect of these are different agents given the Bond name. <laughs> There's a continuity error between this and the previous films because when they meet Bl- when he meets Blofeld in this film, Blofeld doesn't recognise Bond, even though. It's a person that he encountered in this volcano lair in the previous film. And it was it was caused because they were adapting the novels out of sequence. But it's yeah. another reinforcement of the idea that this is a different agent. They were originally going to utilise that Bond had to have facial reconstruction to change his identity because everyone knows who he is and he become too well known. Which, if you've got to go into bars and just keep introducing yourself as Bond, James Bond, of course people are going to get to know who you are. You're the worst secret agent ever, mate. <laughs> But they ditched that idea, so it's left that whole ambiguity of who is Bond, which has played through the franchise since, and it's going to have much more weight with the future of Bond after the events that transpired in um, No Time to Die, which, like you mentioned earlier on, No Time to Die lent heavily into this film. In fact, the whole of Daniel Craig's run lent heavily into this film, 
because yeah. Daniel Craig's run was all about Bond falling in love, not just getting with the girl like he's done in every other Bond film, but Bond fell in love and it ripped his heart apart at the end of it. And that yeah. was Casino Royale. And then everything has been taken from her. And so it was natural that it would come full circle back to On a Majesty's Secret Service because this was the first film that had Bond actually finding true love. Yeah, and suffering for it. And, and as we've seen, you can't be James Bond and you can't be happy. Yeah, I know, as you said, it's referenced all the way through with the line, uh, we have all the time in the world. So it's, it's, uh, it's clearly one of those films which has, has gained a much better reputation since its initial release. Uh, uh, Lazenby's good. Uh, let, let's be honest, he's not, uh, uh, he's not bad in the role. Uh, he had been signed for seven films. But his agent basically said that, uh, uh, listen, Bond's going to become archaic during the 1970s. And Lazenby was uh, heavily into sort of um, alternative lifestyles and peace and love and uh, grew his hair long and a, and a beard uh, when he appeared at the premiere and sort of shunned all that sort of uh, screen violence. And it wasn't the fact that he, w- he was sacked, which, again, is, is, uh, um, uh, is one of the rumors. He didn't get on with director Peter Hunt and he didn't get on with Diana Rigg. Uh, there was a lot of uh, onset upset uh, in this particular film, but he portrays Bond solidly. And if he'd have done more Bond films, I think he would have become become more comfortable in the role, yeah. uh, and and uh, uh, been interesting to see where he would have gone. Yeah, it it would have been interesting if he had stayed around to see the repercussions of the final moments of this film, how that would have influenced the future stories. In the same way that we've seen it in recent years with the final moments of Casino Royale impacted on Bond's personality for the following films. It's a shame that he didn't stick around. I would have loved to have seen him grow a bit more as the character. And I think that's one of the reasons why he gets overlooked and dismissed is because he only had this one outing. And so people think, well, it's not really worth me watching it. Yeah, I think that was, that was, that's the big thing about it. I think that that's helped cement it as being considered a a failure. Interestingly enough, there was one idea that, that Peter Hunt had discussed that if Lazenby had remained in the role, that Hunt would have directed the successor, Diamonds Are Forever. And the idea was uh, that the film would conclude with Bond and Tracy driving off following their wedding. And then at the beginning of Diamonds Are Forever, the pre-credit would have been the sequence of, of Tracy being killed. And that would have uh, moved on to. So which is kind of, again, foreshadowing what, what's happened as you've just said, with with uh, the Craig run on it, uh, but of course, in an alternate universe, that's what we would have had. But it's it's a great film, and you know, there's a lot of love for it. And I've readdressed it recently, which is why we sort of suggested uh, we talk about it. You know, there is a, a contemporary look at this film. We saw Bond being vulnerable. We saw. Uh, the fantastic direction that Hunt had got and was known for his sort of choppy editing style, and he brought that to the film. He he had a kind of a no-frills approach, which yeah. was an almost back-to-basics from Russia with Love look at it uh, and and playing down the sort of comic booky style that, that Sean Connery's Bond went in with uh, uh, You Only Live Twice and Diamonds Are Forever and that more carried on with and got Bond back to being grittier it got not only got him back to being grittier but it went light on the gadgets and girls and went high on plot and intrigue which makes it closer to the novels of bond so you know it's considered by many as the first true bond adaptation to film it got criticism 
on release as a result from an audience who'd been raised on girls, gadgets and gung-ho. But the negativity was unfairly levied at Lazenby. The youngest Bond actor, and he's still the youngest Bond actor, at the age of 29, he was portraying this role, which he could have grown significantly into this different kind of Bond. He had a different style to Connery. The complete contrast that we keep saying to Daniel Craig's era is very, very valid, simply because this could have been... Daniel Craig had the same criticism when Casino Royale came out. He had the same negativity thrown at him, even though, again, Casino Royale was a huge success, just like on A Majesty's Secret Services. If Daniel Craig had walked away at the end of Casino Royale and not returned, he'd have been, 30 years from now, the one which people go... Oh, people kind of forgot Casino Royale. It's really good, and it's one of the best in the series. Don't overlook on a Majesty's Secret Service because he was only because Lazenby was only in the one film. If you've never seen the film, give it a check out. You should do it. It's one of the most. It's until recently, it's one of the most good-looking of, of Bond films. Production value, the, the the cinematic quality. Following this, Bond got very very TV movie looking, especially during the Moore years when John Glenn was shooting them. Yeah. You know they they had the big sets and the big set piece and the globe trotting, but they were very unremarkable looking films. And that only really came back into fashion with, with the Craig era when you got, yeah. not that there weren't talent, talented directors in, but, but the look of the films, they had a style to them that had, had, had sadly been missing through a lot of the Bond films. They do have a tendency in that period, um, up until sort of the Brosnan period, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say, but they were all much of a muchness, cutter, cookie cutter movies, as opposed to the, the fine looking film that, that Hunt made. It's a shame that Hunt never went on to, mm. to make another Bond film. He did go on to make some other movies. Um, he'd, he'd been previously been offered "You Only Live Twice," but passed over for Louis Gilbert, who came back to to shoot in Bonds later in the future. But but nothing spectacular. Shout of the Devil, Gold, uh, a couple of Canon movies, and and. That's really, really it. Nothing as outstanding as his directorial debut. Yeah. As Andy said, well worth checking out. If you uh, if you think this is the dreadful Bond film because you've heard the legend of it and the rumour, then you're absolutely wrong. This is a Bond film to be readdressed. It stands closer to the Daniel Craig films than any of the previous films. It does something different the way that Craig's movies did. You'll find that Lazenby was a strong Bond and could have been a fantastic Bond if he given the opportunity to play the role again. Yeah. But we'll never know. But for now, On A Majesty's Secret Service is always up there as one of the best Bond films ever. Andy, where can we find it if we want to watch it? Not available for free on any services, but it does drop on a regular basis during various seasons on Sky Movie. So keep a look out there if you want to wait. If not, you can rent it on all services or buy it, or just do yourself a favour and go out and buy the Bond anniversary box sets where you get to have all the films with all the extras interviews behind the scenes featurettes everything that you need from a bond film that's my biggest suggestion buy it so we've been talking about it for umpteen amount of weeks why aren't we getting peacemaker in the uk well as expected it's finally landed on sky in the uk uh we are one episode in i've seen it and he did something sneaky i managed to see it way before (laughs) For those who are thinking, Peacemaker? Who is this Peacemaker? Is it the George Clooney film? Have they done a TV spin-off? No. This is a spin-off from The Suicide Squad as opposed to The Suicide Squad. Um, So after surviving being shot and buried under a collapsed building, 
the peacemaker, otherwise known as Christopher Smith, played by who would have guessed he's an actor, John Senna, is roped in by Amanda Waller, played by Viola Davis, to work with a new Black Ops team who are tasked with battling a mysterious new threat known as the Butterflies. Can he make it through without annoying everyone around him and making a complete douche of himself? Which he does remarkably well in the first episode. This is a bit more downbeat than what I expected. Mm. It's again directed by James Gunn. So you've got all the James Gunn crudities that you one would expect and hope for. But it's there's a kind of a somber, sad tone to this, which I, I didn't quite expect with the first episode. The peacemaker who considers himself a superhero is a bit of a numbskull. Yep. Sad and lonely man who finds it hard to make relationships apart from with his incredibly racist father, which there's a subplot suggested where that's going to go. Uh, and even the people around him who are working with him don't really like him. There's a scene stealer in the, in, in the form of Eagley, his sidekick, uh, Eagle. Yep, it's an eagle that hugs. <laughs> if you've not seen it, you figure it out. But I, I was surprised. I mean, yeah, there's some big kick-ass moments in it. There's some great uh, visual effects, especially eagerly. But it was a, it was a lot more um, um, low-key than I thought it was. And I'm very impressed with John Senna as an actor. Yes. Um, over the course of the series, as it goes on, you'll get to see exactly what Senna is capable of. As the series is, like you say, very low-key from start to finish. There's great action set pieces. There's marvellous humour scattered throughout, but it is a very poignant tale about characters and their development and how people grow throughout the whole series. You have got a lot of joy to come. And there's the little throw, listen to every throwaway line about Peacemaker's encounters with other supervillains and superheroes, because it was James Gunn's chance to throw out random obscure characters as now being canon in the DCEU and it's <laughs> hilarious he does it throughout the series there's a lot to look forward to and I'm I'm got I'm re-watching it as it's dropping each week now because I enjoyed it so much the first time round I want to re-explore it. it it's just marvelous the cast are all great the idea behind it works a treat but you get to see like I say so much character growth over the series that it is surpassed just being a generic superhero comedy, comedy show, it's become something more. Um, a couple of points I just want to uh, mention before we move on. Firstly, the needle drops on it. <laughs> Fantastic, because it, A, that's my era of, of rock music. And in the very first episode, Peacemaker lip syncs to one of my best friends, bands, <laughs> the form of the choir boys, uh, um, which is just marvellous. There's a reference that... And, you know, only a handful of people across the world are going to get, but absolutely fantastic. And and, and, and bless you, James Gunn, for, for doing that. I've, I've not spoken to, to my mates in the band. I've worked with them in the past, and uh, I was so impressed by that one. And then the other thing you've got to mention is the unskippable opening credit sequence that I don't think I'll ever grow tired of watching. Do you want to taste it by Wigwam? What an obscure <laughs> band, and what a great I'd never band. heard of them. I'd never heard of them. I'd heard of them. But I'd never latched onto them. But now I've listened to so much of their stuff simply because this is what James Gunn does. He finds tracks that are obscure that he loves and finds a way to put them into his productions to get us all going. Oh, no, I need to find more of their stuff. Absolutely brilliant opening sequence. Best song and dance routine that's ever been put on TV 
ever. We'll probably address it again when we get to the last episode and do a retrospective of the series as part of the reviews. But Andy, what have you been watching this week? Remember, you're doing the Lord's work, especially when it comes to Sky. We'll start off with Disney Plus and the Ice Age Adventures of Buck Wild. Where are those two? Awesome freedom! Hello, boys! Ice Age is back. I bet. On Disney Plus. If we don't find them, I'm going to kill them. It's a figure of speech. And ow. The Ice Age Adventures of Buck Wild. Rated PG. In the tried and tested arena of spinning off side characters from popular animated franchises, thinking their popularity is greater than it actually is. For example, see Minions, Penguins of Madagascar, and Puss in Boots comes this expansion of the Ice Age series of films, which is titled after the scene-stealing character of Buck Wild, voiced by Simon Pegg. However, this appears to be a huge bait-and-switch, as the focus of the film is Crash and Eddie. Remember them? No? Don't worry, you're not alone. Whose misadventures in seeking dangerous thrills make them cross paths with Buck again, who appears to have problems with dinosaurs led by Orson, a protoceratops with an immense brain. Hilarity, apparently, ensues. This was initially conceived as a TV series spin-off, an arena in which there was greater success when spinning off animated movies. Again, Penguins of Madagascar and Puss in Boots that impressed much, much more on the small screen. After the merge between Fox and Disney, it was marked for a movie outing, but without the original studio Blue Sky involved. And this absence shows... Whilst the series of films kind of started to get a little stale, they still retained a good foundation of family mixed in with wild and crazy fun. And here it feels like it's trying and failing to emulate their vibrant and sometimes wacky style, and without the skill set to do it. The animation is okay, but looks extremely dated and sometimes choppy, and it feels like a film by committee as opposed to something that warrants an adventure. With Disney themselves behind the animation, you'd be forgiven to expect a certain level of quality, but clearly there was no passion involved in crafting this, and the whole, thankfully short proceedings just feel flat and unengaging. Maybe the youngest of audiences will lap up the misadventures of Crash and Eddie, but long-term fans of the Ice Age series will be more distracted by the voice cast who replaced the core group of Manny, Diego and Sid whenever they pop up. All in all, the production values feel like it should have stuck to a TV series format where it could have had a little more fun in bite-sized chunks. As a movie, it just exists and is immediately forgettable, even whilst it's still running. You see, I think the offshoot of Puss in Boots was great because I think the Puss in Boots movie is good. But the, the thing about the Ice Age movies is the first one is so good and didn't need a sequel because all the yeah. great work done in that film has been unpicked by subsequent sequels. It was one of those, those perfect uh, animated films which had real heart to it, which has always been astray in yeah. any of the sequels. That original, beautiful, pounding, sentimental heart in that first movie has been ditched. I, I have zero interest in this as I had zero interest in the other Ice Age movies. After two, I saw a, a couple of them that I can't even say that I finished. What else have we got? The Eyes of Tammy Faye, which also landed on Disney Plus this week. I was going to watch it last night. I'd planned to watch it last night. And then I got into Picard again. And then <laughs> I got into Resident Alien. And then I got into Peacemaker. And there was three hours gone yeah. uh, at that point. Uh, I could barely keep my eyes open. I'm looking forward to seeing it. I, it's interesting that I listened to a BBC podcast about Tammy Faye. So I'm, I'm very familiar with her and what she did. So I, I'm, I'm very intrigued to see this uh, great cast. I love Jessica Chastain and Andrew Garfield. So are you going to tell me that it's worth watching? These eyes 
It's all part of our mission to help people. God has a plan for us. God does not want us to be poor. We're not doing anything wrong, though. She's a firecracker, Jim. The eyes of Tammy Faye. So Tammy Faye and her husband, Jim, rose to prominence in the 70s, becoming hugely successful in the TV evangelical world and crafting the largest religious network and theme park. But whilst the pay-to-preach system looked hugely successful, behind the scenes there was a lot going on with financial and personal scandals, investigations, and even Tammy's embracing of people from all backgrounds causing a lot of friction. The rise and fall from grace is the focus of this biopic, stacked with solid stars who lift the whole to something more than the TV movie it could have been. I admit to not knowing much about Tammy Faye before watching this. I only knew the basic details about TV evangelism, corruption, and anything I'd picked up from listening to Iron Maiden's Holy Smoke. So I sat down not knowing what to expect, and within minutes was captivated by the screen and thoroughly engaged until the end. This isn't because the material is strong. In fact, even without my knowledge of events, if I'd been asked to write a story about TV evangelists, I think I'd have hit every beat of this film. However, what makes this journey compelling is the star power involved. Andrew Garfield, as Jim Backer, is unusual mesmerising form, charming yet with an underlying sinister aspect and clearly hiding something important. But it's truly Chastain who owns this film in the lead role of Tammy Faye. She vanishes entirely into character, becoming almost unrecognisable beneath the adorned makeup and eyelashes for which Tammy was known, and gives a performance that feels entirely genuine. Given all the corruption on display within this TV evangelist world, it's interesting that whilst it's covered over the course of the story, the focus on Tammy a genuine good-natured soul in a bed of corruption gives it a human element that the audience can connect with. Yes, she isn't perfect. Who is? But she feels real and honest. In essence, this is a generic biopic that is made so much stronger by the casting decisions. The Eyes of Tammy Faye is a great watch and well worth checking out. Yeah, I'm on for it. I really am on for it. I've also checked out Four Good Days, which sees Mila Kunis as a struggling heroin addict who's trying to get her life back on gear we both came to the agreement that she was a good screen presence but not much in the acting chops always delivers always likable is this one of those films where she can get under the skin and, and play a character rather than just playing a part very much so i'm on a level with you molly opioids have a 97 percent relapse rate you have gone through this 15 times do you know what an opiate antagonist is no it's a shot we give you once a month. This shot essentially makes you immune to getting high. Is it safe? Are you kidding me? Now all of a sudden your body's a temple? You have to be clean for at least a week. Four more days, seriously? Who would have thought that Mila Kunis is actually a great actor? Certainly not me. And I've mentioned a few times that I found her quite bland and uninspiring. So colour me impressed with her performance here as Molly, an early 30s addict who makes an impassioned plea to her estranged mother, played by the ever-able Glenn Close, to help her get clean and put her life on track. With a chance to get an injection which will block her addiction, she needs to stay clean for four more days before taking it. And so the film sets up the exploration of addiction and the impact it has on the individual and those around them. I was drawn in from the start of this film. I was quite caught off guard by Kunis, who I didn't immediately recognise. She looked vaguely familiar, but I couldn't quite place who it was. And then once it dawned on me, I was like, well, wow, this is this is completely different to what we normally get from her. 
Close and Kunis's relationship feels very real. The surface animosity covering up the buried care and love and the manner in which each other's defences is broken down feels very believable. The beats are generic. It follows the cliches and the tropes that you would expect from a film about addiction. There's no real surprises in there, except for the two main performances and how well the chemistry is between Kunis and Close throughout. Kunis, like I said, was unrecognisable at the start, and she completely falls into the role. She's believable, giving a heartbreaking and heartfelt performance that keeps you engaged all the way through. The ending kind of lets it down slightly, but doesn't upset the apple cart too much. This is a film that is well worth checking out. It could have just been a generic TV movie, but again, lifted by some good performances. And then this is where my commitment, and this has become a huge commitment now, to watching every Sky original is starting to really hurt me. As I checked out Liam Neeson in Blacklight. I'm guessing from that uh, introduction, Andy, that uh, you don't have much love for this. And uh, Just before, again, that you start this, Liam Neeson, eh? What's happened to him? He must take every single part that's thrown his way. <laughs> Has he got a huge tax bill? He's got a lot of time on his hands. I don't need to see Liam Neeson do this kind of singular man-on-a-mission movie again. There was a that dreadful one, Where's the Plow Driver, that was on <laughs> Amazon. Did you see that one? Yes. 20 I minutes did. I lasted on that one, and it was just <laughs> so... Oh, Liam Neeson, you are so much better than than these roles. I don't know if you've got a, uh, you know, you, you're buying a new swimming pool. I, I just don't get it. But but time to move on, mate. If you're listening, if, if you are listening, don't come around to my house. <laughs> He's got a particular set of skills. He'll track you down. Yeah, but not clearly in picking a great script. And I'm guessing <laughs> from that intro, this is not a great script. One day you wake up and realize you're not sure who the good guys are anymore. You're a federal agent involved in a secret FBI program. Off the books. What kind of bad stuff do you do? Breaking and entering. Physical coercion. You name it, I've probably done it. Murder? Not on my menu. So Liam Neeson isn't even trying these days, is he? In Blacklight, he plays a shadowy government agent who specialises in removing operatives whose cover has been compromised. However, he stumbles onto a conspiracy within his ranks that threatens the upper echelons of power, and he becomes a one-man force to save us all via the use of strong words and poorly edited action. Directed by Mark Williams, who worked with Neeson on Honest Thief, an equally subpar entry into his CV, Neeson just phones in the role, not even attempting to get into any type of character these days. As ever since Taken, he's pretty much played the same guy over and over again. But when handed a screenplay that is packed with so many cliches and tropes, you can kind of understand why an actor may just play it generic and take the money. It's a shame, because take away some of the cliches and give the screenplay another pass, and there's some semblance of a decent political thriller in here somewhere. Sadly, it's buried behind unnecessary chase scenes and fights, and it's directed by a guy who clearly watched other directors on films he produced and thought, that looks easy, only to find that maybe some people should just produce instead. No wonder this ended up being a Sky original in the UK, which given that Amazon usually snap up the Neeson thrillers in recent years, it certainly shows how bad this one was. So what's coming up over the next week if uh, we do get a chance to get back to the cinema? I guess we, we're going to try and get to see Mobius. 
Bowie. Yep. Morbius comes out this week, as does Sonic 2, which I've definitely got to get me get myself seeing. And the DreamWorks animation, The Bad Guys, which looks like Ocean's Eleven with animals and is definitely on my list of I want to catch this one. I want to catch this one, but they've not, not done much in the way of promotion on this, have they, at all? Over the past week, I've seen it on the side of buses everywhere. So they've really ramped it up in this last run. But up until the past couple of weeks, no one heard anything about it. So... Let's see. It, it it might do some good Easter time business. Now TV and Sky, the many saints of Newark lands this week, as does Spirit Untamed. Netflix, Celeb 5, Behind the Curtain, which is a fake VCR comedy movie. The Bubble, which is the Judd Apatow movie about a group of actors trying to make a high-budget sequel whilst in lockdown. Confession, an action thriller that plays out in real time during a night when a vengeful religious confession takes place. And the big thing of Netflix this next week, Better Call Saul season five is I'm finally with us. Can't wait. I listened to a podcast yesterday with the writers of Better Call Saul, and I am just, just so in. <laughs> We've been waiting for this for years. Um, Amazon sees Hacks season one land, uh, the Gene Smart um, starring series. She picked up awards for her role in this series about a once prominent comic who tries to revitalize her flagging career. Disney Plus sees better Nate than ever. The story of Nate, a 13-year-old from Pittsburgh who has a goal to be a Broadway star, which is based on the award-winning novel by Tim Federley. And the great film, Amelie, goes on to Disney Plus this week. Oh, and I, 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 I always want another excuse to rewatch that film. Yeah, a lovely little film. I remember being quite obsessed with it when it came out, even so much I got yeah. the soundtrack album, I think. I mean, it's a good week. That's a good week of round yeah, for films. Call Saul. I, I, I didn't realise it was, it was starting this soon. Oh, I'm... Just can't wait. I'll be I'll be there for that. I guess they're dropping it weekly. Yes. Good time for telly at the moment. Absolutely great time for TV. But it's not a great time for us because it's time to go. It's the end of the show. But before we go, and we do this every week, uh, we'll give you our uh, neat things. Neat things, things that we've enjoyed, watched, read, ate, played, you name it. As long as we've enjoyed it, we get to talk about it. Andy, do you have a neat thing for this week? So uh, you've, you've just said that, you know, it's a great time for TV at the moment. And so my neat thing is as the season is now coming to an end, we've only got one more episode to watch this week. Snowpiercer season three. Now, this has been on the back burner for me to mention for a neat thing all the way through since the first episode of this season. I briefly mentioned it in passing when it was launching and I've had the notes for it. All the way up for the past seven weeks, I've had the notes in front of me saying, neat thing, Snowpiercer season three, question mark. It was going to come eventually. I keep jumping on this train and it never lets me down. This season started off with the train split into two. The smaller engine led by Andre overheating fast and seeking the, the results that Melanie had hinted at on the second season. And the longer car being ruled by Mr. Wilford, a cold, hellish place. And it looked like the whole season was going to focus on two separate trains. And literally within the first two episodes, that was resolved. And then it looked like it was going to be focusing on another aspect. And then within three episodes, that was resolved. And there's been an underlying thread about finding finding a part of the world that is starting to warm up, a paradise, a Garden of Eden kind of thing that has been rattling underneath. And now it's getting close to the end of the season. It turns out that wasn't the key story all along and something else has been happening. And man, this is a series that never lets me down. It absolutely never lets me down. First season started and I, I thought to myself, eh, 
do you really need a season for something that was done into a film? And it turns out you did, and it played with the idea, and it did different concepts. The second season, uh, where can you go with this? They went big with the second season. And this third season has just been thoroughly engaging. Every character, once again, has had a chance to grow. Every moment has been great. The action beats are fantastic. The design work of Snowpiercer and all the other mechanical engines that you get to encounter throughout this series are stunning. I love this series. I love how they're going with it. I don't want them to keep going. I think that they should maybe get two more seasons out of it and then just, you know, pull the brakes and uh, stop at the station and leave it there. Because I think it is a show that at the moment, it's delivering every season and surprising and continuing to grow. But there's only so much you will be able to do. But at this point in time, as season three is coming to an end, it's my neat thing. If you've not jumped on board Snowpiercer at all, get them all watched on Netflix. If you just haven't watched season three, get this binge watched in one day. It's thoroughly, thoroughly engaging. You've, you've kind of talked me into going back and, and watching it. I saw the first season and liked it. Uh, the second season started and, and I didn't engage instantly. And that can be problematic in this day and age because if you don't engage from episode one, then, oh, look, there's another shiny thing that you've got to got to watch. And, and certain shows get pushed back and back and back. Um, uh, one of my neat things is going to be uh, addressing a, a similar sort of, of, of issue. So I'm, uh, I'm intrigued to watch it. I just need to find the time. There's that and The Expanse that uh, I, 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 not that I disliked in any way. For some reason, they just fell off the radar a little bit. I've, I've got to get back into it. But I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's turned out. It went through development hell as a TV project for a long time. And I'm glad it's worked out yeah. and it's become something more than just the film. I'm guessing then it's closer to the original graphic novels. It's it's taken more elements from the original graphic novels, uh, but it's diverted off and become its own thing at the same time. I'm, I'm, I'm interested. Uh, my neat thing is, and I'm 30 years too late for this one. <laughs> I'm literally, I've just started on The Sandman. When, when The Sandman came out, I, I never, I didn't engage with it at first. I, I read the first issue I, for some reason, didn't click with me. That's back in the 80s. That's how long ago it is. Uh, late 80s, maybe early 90s. Then recently, with all talk of the Sandman series, I got the Audible series, which I've talked about, and then I started catching up with the books. And I'm about halfway through the books. And uh, I have some reservations on Neil Gaiman, um, which is not the time or place to talk about it. But he does create interesting supporting characters. And I think that's the secret of the Sandman. It's it's basically it's an anthology. One of the more interesting characters, he didn't create him, I guess, that's more biblical, but he's uh, undertaking of presenting Lucifer Morningstar. Yep, Lucifer, the guy downstairs. He appeared as a supporting character in a couple of issues of The Sandman, and then as a character decided that he was going to kick it into touch and leave hell and go and explore the world. He didn't want to be that guy anymore. An offshoot series appeared from Vertigo. Vertigo were, were fantastic, and I and I much mourn their... It wasn't so much their demise, the fact that, that DC couldn't be bothered with them anymore, and created this offshoot series written by Mike Carey, drawn by various different artists. And it's basically about Lucifer's adventures on Earth, uh, while he's still inherently not good. I won't say evil, but not good. He's, he's become a well-rounded and intriguing character. Runs a bar in LA and, uh, again, has a certain kind of style 
that I think British writers brought to Vertigo Comics and that era of DC. And it's just just a joy to read. I'm through the first graphic novel right now, uh, loving it. Never got to watch the TV version of it. And I know it became a little bit of a, a, a watered down version of what the books were. But I'm now really interested to try and catch up with the, the Lucifer series. Unfortunately, the first couple of seasons aren't available, but I know Netflix picked up the, the later series and, and, and concluded yeah. it there. So I'm, I'm going to try and track down the earlier series and, and, and get them seen. But thoroughly enjoying it. It's, it's a really well-written book, as is most of the stuff that, that came from the, the Sandman universe. Uh, well worth a read. As I said, I know I'm 30 years too late, but I, uh, I'm, I am in for the run on this and as well as continuing reading Sandman and that's my neat thing for this week and for this week well that's it we'll be back again next week with another film file where we'll be talking about oh deep dives news you get to hear Andy and I chat about the world <laughs> because that's what the show is about folks uh, Andy any big plans for this week no big plans except for watching the multi I hopefully get getting to watch things on the cinema screen for good Sonic, hopefully. For bad, Morbius, definitely. And for ugly, Morbius again, let's just be honest. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, um, some trepidation about stepping into the darkened cinema to see that one. But, you know, we, we say this a, a lot, that you can't judge a film until you've seen it. Yeah. Maybe this time I'll make an exception. <laughs> anyway, we're done. We'll be back again next week. But before we go, there's always something formal about the point of a gun. <laughs>